Welcome to another episode of the Criminal Law Department Presents Podcast, a production of the Criminal Law Department at the Judge Advocate General's Legal Center and School in Charlottesville, Virginia. Every two weeks, we release a new episode. Today, we're going to have a conversation about a recent opinion from the Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces. Please note that these episodes may contain facts and circumstances surrounding criminal trials. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to Criminal Law Department Presents Calf Chats. I am not CAF Chat's host staple, Lieutenant Colonel Dave Seagraves, United States Marine Corps. I am, however, Major Rianne Wentz, and I am joined by... Major Justin Nottingham. Today we're going to talk about United States versus Jeter. Generally, this case is about whether or not the convening authority can take race into account when choosing panel members. Now, Major Nottingham, at the center of this case is Article 25, and we're going to be talking about Article 25 a lot throughout the podcast. So can you give our listeners a refresh on what Article 25 is? Sure. Uh, So Article 25 is a lot of things, but in this context, Article 25 is what we're talking about when the, uh, the convening authority has been presented with the veneer, a, um, all of the possible panel members that could be uh, selected. And in this case, uh, it is the criteria by which the convening authority is choosing uh, which persons to detail. And with regards to this portion of Article 25, it's those criteria that include age, education, training, experience, length of service, and judicial temperament. Let's talk about the procedural history and facts of this particular case. Major Nottingham, what do we got? So the facts of this case, uh, with regards to the cues and the nature of the offenses, unfortunately, those are fairly unimportant. Um, but in 2017, Lieutenant Junior Grade uh, Willie Jeter, an African-American naval officer, was convicted by a monochromatic, read all white, panel at General Court Martial for violating the Navy's sexual harassment, instruction, drunken operation of vehicle, sexually assaulting two different women, extortion, burglary, conduct on becoming an officer, community threat, and unlawful entry. For those of you who are interested, a lieutenant junior grade is an O2 or the Army equivalent of a first lieutenant. Uh, Anyway, the same panel then sentenced Lieutenant Jeter to 20 years of confinement and a dismissal. Notably, prior to voir dire, the defense counsel objected to the makeup of the panel, citing, and I quote, a systematic exclusion of members based on race and gender. But the trial judge found that there was no evidence of exclusion and denied the motion. Interestingly, this case was already at CAF when in light of United States versus Best, it was remanded back to the MCCA, who found the evidence presented on remand sufficient to question the regularity of the convening authority's member selection. NMCCA ordered affidavits, and neither the convening authorities nor the SJA could recall if they had used race as a criterion. Without this, the NMCCA considered that in this case, uh, two African Americans were removed from the CMCO, and three other cases with African American accused were tried by all white uh, panels, but still affirmed. Major Nottingham, you mentioned United States versus Bess, so I want to take a minute to talk about that case. So in Bess, the CAF dealt with a similar issue to Jeter, where the appellant, who was African-American, was tried and convicted by an all-white panel. 
The appellant in Bess argued that the convening authority's selection of members violated his Fifth Amendment's guarantee of equal protection and was actually unlawful command influence. CAF rejected both of Bess's arguments, and further, the CAF actually declined to extend Batson, which we will talk about in just a second, to the convening authority's selection of members in accordance with Article 25 UCMJ. CAF also declined to apply the analysis announced in a case called Castaneda versus Partida, which is a three-step process for evaluating grand juror selection in light of the Equal Protection Clause. Ultimately, in Bess, CAF ruled that the mere fact that a court-martial panel fails to include minority representation violates neither the Fifth Amendment nor does it constitute UCI. So, Bess is really the background as we head into the analysis of Jeter. So, Major Nottingham, specifically, what issues did CAF grant in Jeter having that background? So, CAF granted review regarding whether the convening authority violated Lieutenant Jeter's equal protection rights over defense objection when he convened an all-white panel using a racially non-neutral member selection process and provided no explanation for the monochromatic result beyond a naked affirmation of good faith in spite of defense objection. Now, while that's the granted issue, it is also worth mentioning that after oral arguments, the court asked for additional briefings, and those briefings that were required uh, to include, in United States versus Crawford, CAF held that in the course of panel selection, a race-conscious process is permissible for the purpose of inclusion. How does the Crawford decision affect the analysis of this case under Avery versus Georgia? And it also included, after appellant's statement at oral argument that race is an improper consideration in detailing panel members, should CAF overrule Crawford? So going into this case, it was permissible for a convening authority to consider race for purposes of inclusion, but not exclusion. Is that right? That is correct. Okay. So how did CAF analyze this case with regard regard to those two issues? So I'm going to try and make this uh, review of CAF's analysis fairly concise. First, CAF reminds the reader about the underlying facts of Crawford, and in which, in that case, an SJ uh, tried to ensure an African American would be on the panel for an African American accused, uh, and thereby asked the adjutant for a list of soldiers, and that the list include at least one African American. Those members were marked with an asterisk. After several failed attempts in trying to confirm race, the SJA succeeded in adding an African American. The Court of Military Appeals in that case struck a distinction as part of its holding in that case between purposeful exclusion and intentional inclusion of minority members, saying if deliberately to include qualified persons is discrimination in favor, not against an accused. The CAF then abruptly states that the appellant correctly contends that deliberate inclusion to ensure fair representation is without a statutory basis pursuant to Article 25, a race-neutral statute which, and I quote, courts must give effect to the clear meaning of the statute as written based on the estate of Cowart versus Nicholas drilling. As a result, the court finds that Crawford is, again, and I quote, unmoored from a statutory authority to include Article 25. So CAF is making very clear here that Article 25 is pretty black and white. There are things that the convening authority can and should consider, and there are things, and, and, and everything else is irrelevant. Is that, would that, is that accurate? That's absolutely correct. Unfortunately, even though Crawford was about inclusivity, uh, it still uh, took into account a factor or rather a criterion outside of Article 25. And 
CAF is quite clear that that is not to be the case. You're not to take into account any criteria outside of those listed in the statute under Article 25. To play off of that a little bit more, and quite frankly, to further justify its decision, CAF draws a distinction between race as a factor and operational necessity as a factor by highlighting the Supreme Court has never expressly disavowed a factor like operational necessity. Uh, but the Supreme Court has directly rejected race as a criteria for a juror in what we're all very used to hearing about, United States versus Batson, wherein the Supreme Court wrote that race is an impermissible criterion for selection of jurors. I want to take another brief detour here to talk about Batson. Uh, I don't want to take too long, but I think there is some value in clarifying for our listeners who likely have heard of Batson in a slightly different context, and that is in the context of peremptory challenges. Batson is a case about peremptory strikes. Essentially, the Supreme Court held that the state excluding a juror based on their race violated the constitutional rights of not only the defendant, but also the excluded juror and the entire community. The court further held that the way that prosecutors exercised their peremptory strikes was subject to the protections of the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. And the Equal Protection Clause, quote, forbids the prosecutor to challenge potential jurors solely on account of their race or on the assumption that black jurors as a group will be unable to impartially consider the state's case against a black defendant, end quote. The Supreme Court ultimately provided the three steps that most justice practitioners are familiar with. The defendant must make a prima facie case of discrimination. Then the burden shifts to the state or the proponent of the strike to offer a race-neutral justification for the peremptory strike. And if the proponent of the strike offers a race-neutral justification, and this justification can be frivolous or utterly nonsensical, it need not even be persuasive or even plausible, then the analysis proceeds to step three, where the judge will decide if the opponent of the strike has proved purposeful racial discrimination. Now, for the purpose of Jeter's case, CAF alleges in a footnote, as you stated, Major Nottingham, that it uses Batson solely for the proposition that a person's race is simply unrelated to his fitness as a juror. However, as Judge Mag's dissenting opinion points out, the CAF uses Batson and the Batson analysis in the context of analyzing a convening authority selection of panel members, a proposition for which Judge Maggs sees no authority. He basically right. says that I don't understand how this court can extend Batson in such a way that we have no authority to do that. So getting back to Jeter's case, um, we've talked about Batson, getting back to Jeter's case, uh, what was the ultimate result after CAF's analysis? The ultimate result is that CAF held that whenever an accused makes a prima facie showing that race played a role in the panel selection process at his court-martial, a presumption will arise that the panel was not properly constituted. The government may then seek to rebut that presumption. In Jeter's case, the government failed to meet that burn and the decision of the M. NMCCA was reversed with a rehearing authorized. So when CAS is a prima facie showing, Major Nottingham, what do you what do they mean? Prima facie is the same language that SCOTUS uses in Batson. In a Batson claim, a defendant may, and I quote, may make out a prima facie case of purposeful discrimination by showing that the totality of relevant facts gives rise to an inference of discriminatory purpose, end quote. The SCOTUS clarifies that this is higher than a quote-unquote more likely than not standard in Johnson versus California. Do you think that prima, fa prima facie 
is like voir dire and that there's very strong opinions about how you pronounce it? Because I know that um, there are some attorneys who are very, very passionate about the fact that you say voir dire or uh, some voir dire. So now I'm very concerned about how I say prima facie. Uh, I'm a prima facie guy. Clearly. And, uh, and voir dire. Uh, well, we can agree on voir dire. Okay. We can agree on voir dire. So neither of us are from Texas. Right, we're, exactly. uh, we're voir dire yes. uh, folks. And uh, to that end, uh, prima, I, th- I think it's uh, the Latin is prima there, prima facie. I agree to disagree. I've, hold, I've heard it both ways. So <laughs> that'll have to go unresolved in the podcast, but probably we'll argue about it later. Okay. Sounds great. Great. Okay. So before we move on, I want to talk to you about how this case is going to affect the field. But one of the things that I was really fascinated by is... You know, we're talking in this case about concerns of racial disparities, about racial discrimination, and and CAF is concerned that if a convening authority can use race to include, that in theory, a convening authority could use race to exclude, which is an absolutely understandable concern, and I think a valuable one. But I was really fascinated by the fact that CAF starts its opinion, and so in my opinion, frames its opinion with the proposition that, and this is a quote, in our American society, the armed forces have been a leader in eradicating racial discrimination. The reason I found that so interesting is because as I have worked through implicit bias issues and racial discrimination issues in military justice, what I've found and what I've read is that for more than 50 years, uh, several studies from a variety of sources have concluded that racial disparities exist at various points in the military justice system. So most recently in 2022, uh, the Department of Defense released its internal review team report, which found that, you know, 75 years after President Truman formally integrated the armed forces, the services actually continued to struggle with racial disparities. That report further found that racial disparities degrade the American public's perception of and trust in the military as an institution. And so the question that I was left with and have been thinking about is, you know, is the military criminal legal system better than the civilian criminal legal system? I mean, maybe, maybe that's that's entirely possible. But uh, that's a discussion for a whole other podcast. But the notion that that CAF posits um, from a case not a study, but the notion that CAF posits that we are anywhere near eradicating racial discrimination in the context of military justice was just a, a little confusing to me. And and it made me wonder why start with that? Like, why frame their opinion in that way? And obviously, I don't have an answer, but it's something that I bumped on, for lack of a better descriptor. So, I, And I would say a good chunk of the... Uh field practicing outside the government, perhaps those TDS folks were probably strongly in agreement with you in looking at that portion of the decision and asking questions as to why it was framed that way. I think most folks who have done a little bit of time in TDS who have two eyes and a heartbeat uh, probably have some questions about how cases are handled with regards to racial disparity. So sure, you're not the only one feeling that way uh, with regards to that particular issue. Yeah. And I mean, I think we're going to talk about the, the impact on the field. And and one of the, the, the hypotheticals that you and I have talked about, and I don't know that we're going to have a, a conclusion on the podcast, but one of the hypotheticals you and I talked about is that in theory, even with uh, a an African-American accused that the convening authority could, in theory, pick an all-white panel. And even if if they did that on accident or if they did did that on purpose, there's really no recourse, even if the convening authority wanted to remedy that. 
And so I'll be interested to see how this plays out. But speaking of that, uh, your experience as a chief of justice is going to be a really great backdrop and your expertise is going to be a really great backdrop on this question, which is how is this case going to affect the field? This case likely affects the majority of the field as everyone was operating under the then correct assumption that Crawford allows for racial inclusion on a panel. Um, how it affects everyone, though, will be different based on how the SJA advice was crafted, uh, how uh, panel selection was, or uh, rather, member selection was requested. And so uh, I'm going to talk through a couple scenarios. Uh, I'm going to start with what I would call the worst case scenario. Um, if you're in an office and the SJA advice clearly includes race as a basis, for selection or Crawford and or your SJ and GCMCA are saying that race played a part in panel selection. I would recommend a new panel selection and CMCO, despite the very real and almost certain need for a new panel document post 28 December 2023 because of the changes to RCM 9-11 and the randomization and number of panel members being called to the courthouse being a function of the judiciary. That 9-11 issue is a completely separate podcast, completely different issue. Uh, but for the purposes of this, you need to know that's on the horizon. Uh, and that uh, plays a factor in whether you go and ask your GCMCA for a, a new CMCO. But here, uh, in that situation, it would certainly be folly to subject either your SJ or GCMCA to that type of questioning uh, at a motions hearing. That said, I'm under the belief that the majority of offices, especially those using orders to the G3 or a mix of orders and SJA notice to the command subordinate to the GCMCA for panel member nominations, likely had some language in those orders that in one way or another asked for gender and race. However, while that order went down and nominations came back with that information, so long as the SJA advice, both written and verbal, was still tied solely to Article 25 criteria, uh, I think you're in a pretty good place. In this case, I would actually practice caution and likely advise most field offices against cutting new CMCOs because the fact pattern here would be so fundamentally different than that of Jeter. If your SJA and or GCMCA provide an affidavit in advance of this issue, unequivocally stating that independent of the submission documents, uh, utilized Article 25 criteria was still adhered to. I would argue at this point uh, that the defense is going to need to, you're already in a much stronger position with regards to your rebuttal argument. Let's leave it at that. But to get even get to that point, the defense is going to need to raise up, again, prima facie uh, showing, uh, by showing that the totality of relevant facts given rise to an inference of discriminatory purpose. While some of our sister services cut new CMCOs for every case, I don't know how they do that. I, uh, just the thought of doing that for every single case raises my pulse. That has not been our standard. And I would agree that a rush, and I would argue that a rush to failure and trying to craft a new CMCO on the fly could lead to more day-to-day -day issues than this potential issue with a very narrow scope. On top of all this, and again, recognizing that some of our sister services send up new CMCOs with every case, I can't caution the field enough against burning your GCMCA out. I've already talked about that 9-11 issue, but asking your SJA uh, to go in and ask for a new CMCO now and another that's going to come into effect after 28 December 2023, particularly for some of those larger offices, they're going to have to ask for 75, 100, maybe even 200 primary and substitute members on their individual CMCOs. 
you're asking both your SJA and your GCMCA to take on a rather large task and potentially doing it twice, uh, you could face some burnout and actually strain some relationships there. So that's why I'm cautioning against that. That being said, I recognize that some of you out there are going to disagree with me. and that's I disagree per- with you regularly. Okay. And, and again, Major Wentz does 100% disagree with me regularly. Uh, and that's totally fine. Just like how it's fine to disagree with me on this particular issue. And for those of you who disagree with me and you're dead set on the necessity of cutting a new, C- new CMCO, uh, if you're going to do that, just a couple things. First, please be careful to take care of the little details, like removing the personnel that you already knew were going to be permanently excused since your last selection. This will result in a new panel. Uh, just that alone is going to shift those uh, folks around enough to create a new panel. And if you're going to take this route now, absolutely go full bore and just build Jeter into your advice, stating that race will not be taken into consideration as an impermissible criteria. At that point, raising a prima facie case would be rather difficult by the defense. Major Nottingham, thanks so much. Is there anything else that you want to talk about uh, regarding this case? Uh, not regarding this case, but potentially about the, again, going back to prima facie and how that's the only way to pronounce it. Uh, the o- That's the only way? Yes. I Okay, well, that's we disagree on that. Thank you all for uh, listening to this CAF chats on United States versus Jeter. Please like and subscribe Criminal Law Presents. And until next time, thank you. Thanks for joining us today for another episode of the Criminal Law Department Presents podcast. If anything you heard sparked a thought, we'd love to connect with you. Your comments help us create better future content for the field or the fleet. Reach out to us on Facebook or Instagram. The information can be found in the show notes for today's episode. The views expressed in today's podcast are those of the presenters and not necessarily the Judge Advocate General's or the Department of the Army or the Department of Defense. Thanks, counsel, for both sides. The court will stand in recess until further order of the court.